Escalator going up Escalator coming down Well if you insist Then I can't resist your Escalator bitch Hello, everyone. Good evening and welcome to the Escalator Pitch Podcast. Also, good morning and good night and good afternoon. Whenever the fuck you're listening. I, I get a little, like, interested in um, movies when they have, like, space time, you know, when they have to tell time in space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What the fuck? You're not always going to test time by years, right? Or, or or human clocks. This always got me. Was in, in The Man of Steel, the, the remake of, uh, you know, Zack Snyder's Man of Steel. You got Zod, right? He fucking hates Earth. He hates Earth with a passion. He wants to destroy this motherfucker. But then at the part where he's like revealing his master plan and he's saying, we've been out in space for 33 years, waiting for 33 years, and like hammering home 33 years. Why? Because it's a Jesus metaphor? No! Kryptons don't measure time in years. They measure them in like schmaldowns or whatever the hell their increment of time around their sun is. Not in years. Right. There was that. Um. There's that Chris Nolan movie where they go to some planet and like time changes based on what fucking Interstellar. Interstellar. Right? Interstellar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which doesn't make sense to me. I watched it going like that's not the way it works, is it? Like that doesn't make sense. But it's also. Like, I guess it kind of makes sense, but then they came up and he's an old man. I was just... Yeah, I don't know. We're we're not astrophysicists and we're not scientists, but... Well, I actually am. Oh, you are? Astrophysic- <laughs> I had no clue, man. Here I am talking about years and parsecs and shit, and you're actually an I astrophysicist. I, I literally just said, Chris Nolan made this movie, and <laughs> I have no idea. I'm... <laughs> I doodle I doodle pictures, man. I have no idea. This that stuff's way over my head. Exactly. I picked my ass. But that is bullshit. That's that is a studio note where they were like, Well, nobody's gonna know it's Jesus, so you must say that it's thirty three years because Jesus died at thirty three years. Blah, blah, blah. Shut up! Shut up! I'm sorry. I'm already no, yelling. No, no, I liked it. I'm, he's got his head shaking. You you guys are missing it. He's into this. He hates the Jesus years thing. I don't think that was a studio. That's a total Zack Snyder move. Is it? That's or David Zack Goyer, Snyder. maybe. Oh, yeah. Or David Goyer. They're both kind of, every once in a while, they just throw in something where they're like, you know what? This moment needs a little bit of Jesus thrown in just for fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we got to really hammer it home. Uh, another thing before we get going that's been brought to our attention so there's been a couple of people who co- who have come out and said that there's ooh, there are podcasts that are similar to the concept that you're uh, making your podcast about. And uh, okay, thanks Jeffrey, thanks Jeffrina. Are are you also pissed off that there's a thousand fucking true crime podcasts? Right. Does that does that irk you? Are you upset about that, Jeffrey? There's there's a godzillion podcast. You know what we bring that's different? Us motherfuckers, us and Mikey the intern. Mikey, get in here. Get in here. Mm-hmm. Who are the motherfuckers saying this? Everyone. They're talking shit. And, and you know, look, this is this is my thing. I want to spread positivity and light and love. So I... <laughs> you off- do? <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, I'm a short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist. That's right. How- <laughs> Dude, I love that. That's why we get along, man. <laughs> so I offer an olive branch to these podcasts and say, hey, instead of, like, feeding into troll bullshit... Why don't we do a crossover? We all obviously love movies, so let's fucking collaborate. Why does it have to be an adversarial thing? 100%. And the other thing is, like you said, there's 
there's a million true crime podcasts. There's a million fucking movie review podcasts. Every fucking person has a podcast at this point. What we gain from this is being able to fucking study up on stuff, have some fun, and talk about movies. And I hope you guys want to come along on the ride with us. Exactly. I mean, look, there's a thing called simultaneous creation. It's just a thing that happens in human history. Like a guy in Japan and a guy in Nebraska will come up with a gritty reboot for, say, Hamburger the movie at the exact same time. And that's not that's not like that guy ripped off that guy. No, it's just humans have this thing, a collective unconscious, and we all come up with similar ideas and things happen. That's why you get Armageddon and Deep Impact or right. Volcano and Dante's Peak or a thousand lesbian vampire movies in the 1970s. Just leave us alone. Humans are dreamers. They like to dream. We're dreaming here on this podcast. So uh, that's probably why I feel a little upset uh, at the moment, but we'll get over it. And speaking of dreaming, that's the perfect segue into what this episode is. You want to know what we haven't done yet? What? We haven't introduced ourselves. Oh, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Here we are thinking everybody knows who we are. Well, uh, you are. I am Josh Stifter, director of The Good Exorcist, uh, reality guy from Rebel Without a Crew, the series. I'm working on my second feature film, Greywood's Plot, right now. Today I was putting a fucking dick monster head onto a tree person's body. I'm doing fucked up stuff. I'm John Brennan. I've done things with Trome Entertainment. I produced a couple of their movies. And uh, I'm also of the last drive-in with Joe Bob Briggs. I wrote the theme song, and I've been on the show, and I drive John McNaughton around. It's crazy. That's who we are. But this week, what, what are we... T- the spe- we were ta- You were saying something about dreams. What are we talking about this week? This week, we are talking about one of the greatest franchises in history of movies, in the history of horror, A Nightmare on Elm Street. I will... I'll... I was thinking about this today as I was kind of studying up on this. I would go as far as to say it was it's the most influential and most watched franchise by me. Now, the only my only argument would be the Alien franchise, which was super inspirational, super I I love the Alien movies. I watch them far more than anything else, but because of the amount of movies, every year I do a marathon of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. So I've definitely watched them more times as a full series. I agree the same thing. Like when I was a kid growing up, I'm a little older than you. So Freddy was just like everywhere. He was just in the collective uh, ether. He was all over the place. I mean, he was on fucking lunchboxes. He was everywhere. But, I, you know, I, I started out a little afraid of him, but then I got into it with this movie, The Dream Warriors, when it suddenly became these these kids that band together and fought Freddy with their dream powers. And that, to me, was like, that's not scary anymore because if you're with your friends and they have these crazy powers to fight this demon, then suddenly it's it's a little more e- easy to, to maneuver through those dreams when Freddy's coming to get you. Right, and I, so my, my kid is six years old, and I was showing him some of the monsters I was, I'm making for my movie today, and he was like, ah! <laughs> he ran off screaming. But and I started thinking about the fact that I watched Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one, I think when I was like three or four years old. Wow. Isn't that fucking insane? That's, that's so insane. That's insane. I went over to the neighbor boy's house and he had an older brother, and his older brother was like, sit down and watch this with me, and would show us fucking Nightmare on Elm Street. And we'd watch it, we play the NES video game and stuff. 
But that, you've said before about how it was like part of the culture. I was like three or four years old at that point, and it was still part of my culture. That's how fucking huge it was. Absolutely. And, you know, you, did you have nightmares? Like, I mean, there's, that that first one is crazy. There's blood shooting out when the Johnny Depp gets killed. There's a three million gallons of blood shooting out and like the girl getting like basically raped on the ceiling. I mean, that movie is harsh. How it's, did you it's survive? It's really harsh. I, I mean, I, I had nightmares and I still, to this day, I have like night terror or uh, sleep paralysis sometimes and night terrors. Oh. And I think part of it comes from seeing these horror movies at a young age. And like, so people who have night terrors, they say they like, everyone sees different things. And, you know, like some people see the tall man or whatever they call a slender man. Some people see like, little goblin thing or whatever. I always saw like this old scaly man. And I wow. think that comes from Freddy Krueger. I think Freddy Krueger was so burnt into my mind and was such a part of the zeitgeist at that time that when I started having nightmares as a little kid, I had nightmares about Freddy Krueger. You know what's weird is that I've had a couple of sleep paralysis or like, you know, waking dreams when I see something and then I jump up screaming and it's always an old lady and the reason why I think is because of Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Have you ever seen right. this movie? It's I, yeah, yeah, yeah. That part with the banshee when they open up the back door and it's like, Whoa! that when I that's I probably saw that when I was like three or four. And it's a Disney movie, but it's so scary at that. There's like two or three scary parts. So yeah, you're right. Like when you're a kid and you see these things, they kind of stick with you forever. And 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 in mine, he's always wearing like really fancy clothes, and I think that comes from Labyrinth. I think David Bowie haunts my <laughs> haunts my dreams in a fancy clothes and a cod piece. The humongous bulge. Yeah, the big old bulge. I've heard from many a woman that uh, their like first sexual fantasy was of David Bowie in Labyrinth. Really? Oh yeah. Say what you will about that, but I understand. I mean, his crotch is like fucking. It's like three baseballs in there. It or something. is. It is. It's the most terrifying thing of the movie. Is that <laughs> especially as a five, as a five, six year old boy, I was just like, "Daddy, what is it? What is it?" He's like, "Shmow, magic, shmow, magic, shmow, <laughs> magic, shmow, magic, meow, shmow, shmow, shmow." Yeah, it's fucking yeah, terrifying. But that's that is the importance of a Nightmare on Elm Street, like, and, and the fact that you know it launched this massive franchise holy shit and i mean he freddy krueger is essentially the frankenstein's monster dracula wolfman of the 80s i mean you had the heyday of the universal monsters and then in the 80s you had freddy you had jason you had michael myers even though he started in the 70s he continued on through the 80s and these were like these were the days. These were just as good, if not better, than the Universal Monster days. I know, but I think the big thing about Nightmare on Elm Street versus the other ones, and I don't want to shit on the other ones, I like them, but Robert England's performance mixed with that makeup was so much better to me. Like, Jason, there's no performance per se. It's just a big guy walking around with a generally cheap costume. Like, when if you look at it as a not a filmmaker, but as a general audience, which at age seven, eight, you know, when I'm first seeing these, I'm just a general audience. I'm not thinking about it like as a filmmaker. All I'm seeing is, okay, this guy just has a mask and a jumpsuit. This guy just has a mask and a jumpsuit. This guy's got a fucking dope ripped up sweater with this crazy makeup. His face is coming out of telephones, a giant snake eating people. Oh, like, yeah. It was just so much bigger and so much more production value, which is why magazines like Fangoria just jumped on it. Like, at that time, 
when I, you know, when I was about 10 years old, that's when I started getting into Fangoria magazine and trying to get all the back issues I could. Fucking, there wasn't an issue that didn't have Freddy Krueger in it. Every single issue had him in it, and it's because he's fun to look at. It's fun to he's look interesting, at. He's interesting, and funny. Robert England is always fun to listen to. He's, yeah, he's funny. He's perfect. There was also uh, a 900 number. Call one nine hundred nine zero nine fred Yeah. <laughs> we'll try to find the... It's probably on YouTube somewhere. And then also, of course... Will Smith does his nightmare on my street. So it became like just this pulp, this pop culture phenomenon, even beyond the scares. He almost became like the Mickey Mouse of horror, which I love. But this is this is what we'll start to, I guess, talk about is there was an original draft of Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 that it, it was called The Dream Warriors. It's by Wes Craven and a gentleman. Uh, shit, we got to shout him out because I don't remember exactly what his name is uh right here bruce wagner and uh this is way different although okay the concept is still the same you got the dream warriors you got nancy and her dad like sort of trying to fight freddy from the first one but there's just so many differences in this thing and i kind of like some of it uh more than what was in the finished movie truthfully really some of it not all of it there's a lot of clunkers we'll go through there's some some dialogue that was like holy shit <laughs> and there's a a particular love scene in here that i think i'll read out loud later with a little barry white music underneath just to yes <laughs> <laughs> just to let everybody know that this wasn't a perfect thing but it also i read somewhere that it was a first draft so they if they had gone on and continued to hone this script you never know what it could have become yeah, and so I, I didn't read it verbatim, like word for word. I kind of went through what was in it, what was different, and just skimmed through it. And it felt like a first draft to me. That's instantly what I thought as I was reading it. Is And I could see how it sort of became what it was. However, looking deeper into it, it is shocking how many versions of the third movie were written or or pitched or how many ideas got thrown out there. There was like... 20 other people writing scripts at the same time like there was like 18 scripts i think written for the third movie and some of the people like uh john saxon wrote his own version and john saxon wrote his own version (laughs) that's crazy to me which we'll get into like that part of it later but uh also who else uh robert england had his own idea for what part three should be he did and i actually think the robert england version sounds really interesting (laughs) <laughs> Freddy's Funhouse, or what was that? Was called yeah, Freddy's, Freddy's Funhouse. Fun we'll have to. I'll have to look and re- we'll read exactly here. We'll we'll pitch. Uh, I mean, we'll promote some of these articles where people covered it, and we'll read exactly what they're all about. But first, let's get into this script. All right, when uh, when a script on page one has the words placental goo, yes, <laughs> you know you're in for some shit. You've got a you've got a winner. Well, and that's the thing about like early draft scripts that I love is sometimes there's unnecessary verbiage in a fun way. And that's when I was reading this, I very much or the the first part, I was like, "Oh my god, there's so much interesting language." But this is so this was written by Wes Craven. Yeah, Wes Craven like, and the other guy I mentioned Bruce, the same Bruce already. Wagner. Bruce Wagner. I already forgot his name. He called him, like, and everything I read, it said it was his writing partner. Okay. So if you're, I'm just curious because I write with Daniel. Like, Daniel and I are kind of writing partners. So it's always interesting to me when something says they have a writing partner because is that just someone helping come up with ideas and Wes Craven's putting down the, the words? Or is Wes Craven coming up with the ideas and Bruce Wagner's putting down the words? It's really that idea of 
of writing a script with someone like that, especially since Wes Craven, obviously, at this time is such a huge, like, he was a master already at that point. Um, and, and the thing that I think immediately stuck out, that sticks out and a lot of people commented on online, is that this is a way darker and grittier oh, yeah. take than what oh. eventually kind of came out. Well, there's some there's some fucked up lines in here. I mean, they go... They don't say Freddy's a pedophile, but they very heavily allude to the fact that he's a pedophile. I mean, he says shit like uh, to Kincaid, instead of your ass is mine, he says your asshole is mine. Oh, God. (laughs) And then the way that Kincaid dies is he's like stuck half in the dream world and half in reality and like a wall and they're trying to pull him out of the dream world and Kincaid's like, oh my God, he's entering me. Oh, oh, oh my and, then, God. and then the razor glove shoots out of his mouth in reality and it's just, so he basically just like fist fucked him to death from the dream world. That's fucked yes. up. <laughs> See, that is fucked up. I And I kind of like that. In fact, in my pitch that we'll talk about later, that's what I want. Like I, I am... I'm a twisted individual. So the more the further you can go with it the better. Now I don't know if they were ready for it in when did when did Dream Warrior come out? 87, 87. I got it right here. It came out in 87. So maybe people weren't ready for it in 87, although the first one's dark. First one's very dark and then the second one's so not dark and so like rapey and weird and I like, like the second one this I, I it's it's fun I, there's something fun about it a metaphor get Freddy Krueger as a metaphor for homosexuality it is it's such a straight that's such a strange idea but works for me as well I honestly even the the worst of them I still find utterly watchable just because of like Robert Englund's performance sometimes they're so over the top silly that I can just laugh and have fun watching it um but with three, it, it went... Two was very silly, though. There's, like, no denying there's some really silly, strange stuff. And then three kind of... It, it finds, like, a happy medium. That's why I think a lot of people, it's their favorite. It's the one they saw most when they were a kid. You know, at that age, they people saw it a lot. And so three kind of hits hard. I think if it had gone, if it had gone that dark... I, I don't know. Do you think it would have had as much of an impact as it did it if it w- had it a... It wouldn't have been... Uh, ch- children wouldn't have been clamoring to be uh, wearing Freddy Krueger's stuff, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> it, Halloween. If, if someone screamed, he's entering me. <laughs> yeah. I like the, Okay, also, that you talk about Dark, there's the sleepwalking scene, which ended up somewhat in the uh, final product, but in this version, the kid's sleepwalking, and he's much younger, and f- instead of doing the marionette with the strings and all that stuff... Freddie is walking the kid, so he's holding him under the arms, and then he has his feet, the kid's feet on top of Freddie's feet. And oh he's like my god! Him. So it's like an uncle, like an, how an it, uncle will walk <laughs> you around. Like you go to church and you step on your uncle's feet, and it's yes. like ha 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 ha, like uh-huh. that. Except, <laughs> except Freddie, and then he's the, the dialogue is the kid's like, "Why me?" And Freddie's like, "Why?" Because I like you, and then he drools slime all over the kid's face. I mean, come on. Yeah, that's the and that's the thing is is like Freddie in theory as a writer it would be hard not to go there. Freddie's a pedophile. Like that's the whole point of Freddie at that time was it was he was an evil pedophile pretty much. I mean, I guess you could argue oh he only killed the children like it's like that's some somehow better. <laughs> True. I guess they. I guess in the first one they never say anything about that, do they? It's really hard to disconnect mentally from the fact that that's what he's 
it's become implied. in my head. It's yeah, implied. it's very implied. I mean, it's just funny that this this killer pedophile becomes like this icon of children's wear. <laughs> right. And I guess that's the, the way they got away with it was just by inferring it. If they had gone that far with three, it never would have been able to become that zeitgeist in the or it never would have been the Mickey Mouse of horror franchise. It, he, we wouldn't be wearing Freddy Krueger gloves. It, that It would be very, very different. Th- this script it's similar in a lot of ways, but it's a lot It's a lot different, and I, I don't think that the story is as clean. This way, if we start right out with Nancy, and she's driving, and she has this dream, and then all of a sudden she's in front of Freddy Krueger's home from when he was a child. It's just very convenient, and like she's on the road looking for her dad who disappeared, who also went to go look for Freddy, and you know somehow he's in this insane asylum in that same town, and the way that they explain it away later is that all these dream warriors are drawn to this county so that they can go and destroy Freddy where he was born. I don't necessarily like that as much as, you know, in the, in the finished products, it's just these kids are good at dreaming and they fight. Th- one thing I really liked is that there's a throwaway line in part three that always stuck with me, even as a kid, where um, I believe the doctor says to Nancy, you know, there's kids out there who slice off their own eyelids so that they don't have to dream or go to sleep and it's just a throwaway line but it's like so creepy in this when you meet the father you find out that he actually did slice off his own eyelids and he's wearing bandages on his eyes so that he can't see or sleep or dream it's it's fucking it's it's bizarre and it's awesome see and i think i read somewhere that there was multiple with multiple versions of this movie it often went back to the same thing where the original concept for Nightmare on Elm Street came from actual stories of these these guys who had come over from somewhere, Africa or something, and were dying in their sleep, so much so that they were keeping coffee under their bed. Like, that from the first movie is based on a real event. Oh, wow. And... And, uh, and one the one dude who was keeping coffee under his bed actually ended up dying in his sleep. And I don't think they ever figured out what was happening, and... The studio and even Wes Craven tried really hard because Wes Craven based that idea for the original on something real. They didn't want it to become too much reality. They were always fighting with this idea of like they didn't want to uh, they didn't want to get into territory that felt like it was too realistic. And what you're explaining right there sounds like something terrifying and realistic if people were actually terrified to fall asleep it's something they might do so that may have gotten cut based on Wes Craven going ah this is too far this is too much possibly or Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont are like eh this needs to be the Goonies (laughs) yeah (laughs) right exactly and yeah that's the thing it it wasn't the what came out does kind of have an R-rated Goonies vibe versus what you're explain or like this script doesn't sound like it has as much of a Goonies vibe. It's less fun, less. Although there is fun to be had. I mean, there's some. The kids are pretty fun. Like the Kincaid kid is pretty, still pretty funny. Throwing out the zingers, and there are some crazy lines in here that aren't funny. Uh, besides the one I already mentioned, it's like your asshole belongs to me. You yeah. asshole! You don't <laughs> asshole. That's so specifically. It's so point. It's pointed at asshole. Uh, at one point, Freddie goes to Nancy, goes, asleep or awake, I'll shit on your corpse. Yes. <laughs> it's 
That's, I mean, man, you're already dead, but Freddy be shitting on you? That's not cool, man. Oh, man. I see, I think, I think you could get away with that line in, like, now. Like, I think you could get away with that in a, in a, like, a reimagining. If he's like, like, it, it, that line isn't as asshole, I don't think you can ever get away with. I don't know if there's ever going to be a time where you could say, your asshole belongs to me, but they, or your asshole's mine. But the, uh, Yes, your asshole belongs to me. Your asshole belongs Kincaid. to me. <laughs> oh, I love that. And then, um, I mean, Freddie gets racist in this one. There's the young black woman who, um, when Freddie like tricks her, she sees her grandmother who she hasn't seen in a long time. And the grandma's like, where you been, baby? And like the little girl, she kind of like goes over to the grandma and puts her head in her lap. And she's like, oh, man, I missed your grandma. And then Fre- Freddy is the grandma. And he goes, grandma, your black ass. Oh, my. Dude, that's not even clever. No. Like, that's just, that's just obligatorily racist. Yeah, it's just like straight up like, OK, now Freddy's a pedophile, a child murderer, and he's a racist. He's irredeemable. When was this script written? Pre-2 uh, no, no, no. It's uh, post two, but I think on the on the front it has the date. Let me look at the front of the the script here. First draft six sixteen eighty six 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 six. Holy shit! They wanted some evil shit out of this one. Okay, so it was like it would have been like right after two. They went from two because two was like right after. Right, they put out two like the next year. Pretty much, I think the first one was 84, so then two must and, have been 85. And, and it was 85, yeah, yeah, and then three was 87. So they went, like, one came out, was a unexpected success, I would assume. I would assume they didn't go into that and go, like, we're making the biggest horror franchise in the of the 80s, like they, I imagine. And when that movie dropped and it was a success, they must have gone, like, all right, fucking next one's out, or maybe even in test screenings. When they saw it was coming out good... They went, okay, we got to get two done. So they wrote it as quick as they can. They they were like, okay, we need to make this movie gay. <laughs> we need to make it goofy. <laughs> it's got to be in the same house. That They had like these key notes. They must have. And then two came out and Wes Craven was like, okay, three, we're going to go darker. Yeah, and I, think, I don't think Wes Craven, I mean, he may have been a consultant or something, but he definitely wasn't in the writing for part two. So he's like, let me take my baby back and give it a little life and, you know, take it in a different direction. Maybe possibly he wanted this to be the final nightmare, although it does end on a cliff t- cliffhanger similar where um, they zoom in on the model and the light in the model goes on, which is very cool that that's in there. And there's other stuff. Is that in the original script? Yeah, it's in the script. And it's the okay. very last thing in here where the light with the model flicks, flicks on. Yeah. So... You know, he was leaving it open, I guess, for for future installments. I don't know. I I kind of I kind of dig what Wes Craven did with New Nightmare as well, where he brought Freddy out of the the you know the dreams and the movies and brought him into reality. Where I I just really love that that he he was getting stronger because people were believing in him and stuff like that. Well, there was something very very like actual boogeyman about him, which actually which I think that's what the Wes Craven movies do. The Wes Craven uh, nightmares do best is he feels like a boogeyman even in the three that we ended up getting it's he is a boogeyman like he's really really getting into their dreams and really really haunting the dreams as opposed to two and four and even five they're like 
there's he's in the dreams, but the dreams are kind of inconsequential to the fact that he's just a monster. Whereas Wan Three and New Nightmare, the dreams are like the key, and or the boogeyman element of it is the key. I, I'm with you where I like a balance of both. I want Freddy to be harsh. I want him to do fucked up shit because otherwise he's just not scary. When he's sitting on the beach with sunglasses in part four, all of a sudden it's like, <laughs> this yeah. isn't really that scary. Or what? I, I do love the part where <laughs> in part four where he stabs the kid in the head and he's a little meatball. And he actually yeah, says, little... <laughs> Rick, you little meatball or something like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, those are so funny. Um, there's a there's a line in here that reflects part four. I don't think they used it in the original um, Dream Warriors movie, but it's in part four where he, it's like a hotel situation. And he says, you could check in, but you can't check out. But yep. they I guess they use that for part four where she's in the Roach Motel. The Roach Motel. Right, that exactly. scene is amazing. Her fucking arms get ripped backwards. And then all of a sudden these roach legs come out of the holes. And that's cool. I love that. The spectacle of the later movies is what's fun for me to watch. The stories are throwaway. They're they're generally pretty awful in everything past three. Besides, up until New Nightmare, I thought New Nightmare is pretty pretty awesome. Like twist on the idea, but everything else is pretty ridiculous. And but the fun of them becomes the spectacle of it until you get to uh, what is the 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 la- the not last one. What is it called? The final nightmare. Final nightmare. Freddy's dead. The final nightmare. Fred- yeah, that. Oh my god, that's a masterpiece of awful. It's <laughs> one of the. It's one of the worst movies ever, and. I always get excited when it's time to watch that one every year. And Freddy, uh, Alice Cooper is Freddy's dad. Yeah, <laughs> and, and he, he doesn't he at one point fly around on a broomstick like the Wicked Witch? I haven't watched that one in maybe 20 years. I'll have to revisit it. Oh, you don't, but you do. It's 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 terrible. It's terrible, but it had been a while since I had revisited it. I remember in, in Agata De Vida, that's in there. Where he's like, all of a sudden, this psychedelic things come out of the TV, and that's uh, in the God of the Schmow Town, baby. So, before moving on to uh, the the other ideas, I just want to read real quick this love scene because it is something else. Okay, so I'm gonna do this. We're gonna play a little, a little sexy music in the background, and uh, <laughs> I'm gonna put on my Barry White voice, baby, and we're gonna we're gonna do this. Interior Neil's bedroom day. Neil and Nancy are in bed making love. Nancy is crying softly as Neil makes love to her. (laughs) They seem to come at once. (laughs) They lie there for a few moments then. Neil says, Do you always cry like that? Nancy says, When it's wonderful. (laughs) What? (laughs) When it's wonderful. When it's wonderful. <laughs> and then Neil says, you're a pretty complicated girl. <laughs> she watches out of the corner of her eye. Nancy says, is that a euphemism for crazy? <laughs> <laughs> and then Neil says, <laughs> I like him crazy. Good practice for me. And then Nancy says, Neil, have you ever thought of suicide? <laughs> what? This is very reminiscent of the night that my son was conceived. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, God. I mean, that is, that is, uh, 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 that's some pretty bad shit, right? (laughs) That is some 
That is some pretty strange jumping around. She's crying. They come together, then she's crying because but it's she's wonderful. happy crying. <laughs> I guess it's happy crying. But, but she's also thinking about suicide. But yeah, then she turns and's like, "Have you ever thought about fucking offing yourself?" I mean, you know, I'm, no, I'm so happy right now, but. I mean, I guess maybe it's related to the context of the rest of it, but that's a pretty bad scene. There's there's one word there that really jumps to me, though. He says, they appear to orgasm together. You they know appear. she did not come. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe it's he like, didn't that's come. An, that's an unnecessary... Oh, he did. I saw his face. I could picture his face. Baby. <laughs> that oh my god imagine whoever was going to direct that movie that's their big note is like the orgasm needs to be fucking really go real big. <laughs> go <laughs> big <laughs> i want you to go big and you don't do anything because you're only appearing like just make just make this face like uh yeah and then just hold on because we're gonna get to you talking about suicide yeah because really inside what you're motivated but right now is suicide it is weird like i wonder like to me that's the kind of stuff that feels first draft like there is like there's the the beats of what needs to be in that scene but it's just sped through. It's like, God, I got 15 minutes and the kids are in the background screaming. I got to write this out quick and I'll come back to it later. And then never came back to it. I mean, I'm glad it exists for our amusement. It's romantic. I'll give them that. Is it? Is it though? She's crying. Like if I'm ever with a woman and she starts crying. <laughs> She's crying. Especially in this like, what Me the fuck's Too. Wrong? <laughs> yeah. We're in the <laughs> Me Too age. If somebody's crying, I'm, we're fucked. You know? I think I just like, that. yeah. And the dude finishes. She's crying, and the dude's like, I'm just going to keep going. He doesn't ask until after he's done. He's getting his sweatpants back on. He's like, so you were crying, huh? And then he calls her <laughs> well, crazy. <laughs> I like him crazy. <laughs> Can you imagine if my wife was like, do you think, honey, do you think I'm crazy? And I'm like, ah, I like him crazy, yeah. baby. I'd be, I'd be done for. I'd be in a d- divorce that quick. You'd be a single man living in the streets. This podcast would be a figment of my imagination. <laughs> Oh shit, man! That's that's. Thank you, Wes Craven and Bruce Wagner. Thank you. A perfect scene, a flawlessly <laughs> written, flawlessly crafted scene that I can't wait to steal from my next movie. Oh, yo, you should, you should do that. Well, can you get sued? I mean, you would probably get sued. You think so? You think that if I had a scene where a chick, what if I just change a couple of the words and he's like, "Do you think I'm nuts? I like I'm nuts, baby. Yeah, I like I'm <laughs> nutty, nutty like a fruitcake." Something. I... <laughs> now talking about nuts, let me nut in your eye while you think yeah, about it... suicide. Oh shit! I'm writing this down. Oh, write it Don't down. Don't sue me. Don't sue me. Don't sue me. I'm well, taking Wes, this. Wes this is, is dead. Only... Bruce Wagner doesn't give a fuck. He's writing for Cronenberg right now, and right. Uh, whatever New Line Cinema. They they don't care. They got the Lord of the Rings money. They're good. Again, I think in the '80s that sequence, that scene. Isn't that out of place? Really? During the yeah, think about Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Like, think about these movies that have these fucked up sex scenes. Like, there's a scene in Fast Times at Ridgemont High where a fucking grown ass man fucks a high school girl for her first time. She's gotta be somebody smile down. Not yeah, but there's like there's stuff in that movie that's really fucked up. Then there's stuff in a lot of those '80s movies where I'm like that scene. In 87, I think they would have got away with it. 
not that they were not that they were trying to get it. Wes Craven is like, can I get away with this? Uh, no, I mean, I just mean like, I don't think that that scene was that out of place of the era. True. And Heather Langenkamp is that how you say her name? Heather. Heather it sounds right. I, yeah, the name is right. I think she's a decent enough actress that she could have played that. Yeah, and that's the thing is like every time I rewatch it, I'm always kind of blown away by, especially in the first movie, the performances from from everyone, like everyone in the movie, and and in in the third one as well. I think all of the performances are really good. Like everyone does a fucking hell of a job. Oh, so let's yeah, let's move on to some of these other ones. You got any favorites? I mean, I, I have to go off the top. I thought that the idea for the Peter Jackson movie is such an interesting concept. Incredible. To me, the idea... So here, so to throw it out there for people, the idea of Peter Jackson's... It would have been the sixth movie? Yeah, it was in, It was instead of Freddy's Dead, it was a competing, I guess, script for, for Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. And uh, it was called Dream Lover. Dream Lover, which is a terrible name, I think. I think Dream Lover is terrible. They could have used I, the Bobby the, Darren song. Come on. The the word lover in any title is just it's like instantly creepy. Lover, like I don't want to dream. Lover is even worse. But like the idea is, I guess the reason why it's called Dream Lover is it because it's these kids like Freddy Krueger at this point. In this point in in reality, Freddy Krueger had become the fucking Mickey Mouse of horror films. Yep. He had been in. He he was on fucking covers of magazines you couldn't walk into a movie rental house without seeing a fucking freddy krueger poster up on the wall if not five there was a tv show there was he was just like a horror host he was a he was just a he was your friend so the idea was to play off of that and freddy had become such a joke that kids were actually like taking sleeping pills to go into dreams to beat the shit out of Freddy Krueger. Yeah. Like, everyone knew how to fuck with him. Like, he was, like, the old joke. And yeah. so all these kids were going in to fuck with him, and then Freddy figures shit out, and he starts figuring out how to kill these motherfuckers. Yeah, I think uh, the first one is accidental. Like, he accidentally kills a kid, and it starts to give him powers, and he's like, oh, shit. So then, suddenly, he, every kid that he kills after that, he suddenly gets stronger and stronger, uh, as opposed to being this bum that he was in a dream getting abused by, like, fourth graders or whatever. And to me, the beauty of this movie is that you almost make Freddy the, the good guy. Like, he kind of was in a bunch of stuff, but you're watching Freddy at this point then going, like... These little fucks are fucking with <laughs> Freddy, which at at this point we love Freddy. Like we didn't want to see him the villain. Right. Like people were he we were a fan of fan of Freddy more than we were of any other character in the movies. So finding a way to to twist that and make him into the the actual lead character of it and a sympathetic he, uh, anti-hero. Right. To me that's amazing, but then also finding the hard part about that movie is finding a way to also make him the villain. So you need to have such perfect casting and perfect writing for, I think there was like a whole, uh, whole like the, the, the actual plot ends up being about a police officer who gets like held hostage in the dreams and Freddy, like these, the kids are going to try to get their dad back. I think that's like the actual, what the plot becomes is like kids who aren't being the ones who are, the kids who aren't fucking with Freddy their dad gets taken in, and it's we find out that he was an officer of that was a part of something in an earlier movie or something like that, or part of Freddy's trial or something like that. And 
so Freddy can like control this guy, and the kids go to try to save their dad and have to defeat Freddy once and for all, or whatever. I dig it. I, I mean, because, yeah, the first half, Freddy could be the sympathetic, abused character, and he kills all the bullies, and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. but then when he starts killing the innocents, that's when the, this group of Goonies-type kids goes in and fucks with him and kills him. That's great. I love it. And the cool thing is, is like, if you play the lead character up as actually still being terrified of Freddy, because you got to have a teenage kid who's going to save his dad or her dad or whatever. So... If that kid is terrified of dreams and you set that up in, early in the movie, they're sympathetic. Freddy is sympathetic through the first half based on all these other kids fucking with him. And you're okay watching Freddy fuck up a bunch of kids for a while in the movie because you're like, these little fuckers who were going in there, taking sleeping pills, fucking with Freddy, they gotta die. But the one who doesn't want to go in there and fight... He is the one, or she is the one, who does end up having to go in there and has to actually take on Freddy for the final fight. I don't know why they chose Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, over this. Uh, uh, you can't really find the Dream Lover script online, but uh, the the one good thing that came out of that whole situation is that essentially his involvement with uh, Peter Jackson's involvement with this Freddy franchise at New Line led to him uh, getting Lord of the Rings. Bob Shea has come out and said that. Bob Shea, he was uh, this founder of New Line Cinema and said, essentially, a script for a Nightmare on Elm Street remake helped them choose Peter Jackson as the one who was going to shepherd Lord of the Rings. What, did you find any that you really liked? Um, well, there's a few. There's um, one that I thought that was interesting. It, it was a Freddy versus Jason concept, is that, um, like, Freddy has a cult of worshippers called Fredheads. And they all yeah. wear Christmas sweaters and they burn themselves and they're trying to resurrect, you know, Freddy. And that that's just a great idea. But le then somehow uh, Jason gets into the mix and, you know, there's all this weird shit. That to me is such a cool concept, a, a cult that worships Freddy trying to resurrect him. Why can't we get that movie? What the fuck is wrong with that? There's a bunch more. I mean, there's um, like you said, Freddy's Funhouse. That was one that Freddy Krueger himself, uh, Robert Englund, came up with. Yeah, so I, I'm trying to remember exactly what the plot of that one was supposed to be. Yeah, I don't really um, remember. <laughs> there's so many. Well, we'll we're going to have to do like a follow-up because there's seriously like 40 different things as far as Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, John, like we said, John Saxon, he did one where it's like a prequel to Freddy Krueger, um, you know, when he's killing the kids. But it turns out the twist of it is that Freddy is actually innocent and it was Charles Manson and his gang killing the kids. Which for me, like, that was the disappointment, the biggest disappointment of anything from the remake or reimagining or whatever was the fact that they set it up like Freddy was innocent in the trailers and in everything. They made it seem like this movie was going to be the Freddy is innocent one. And then it just became the same fucking movie again. Like, they just did the same thing, but without Robert England's amazing performance, without a lot of the fun, and with some really fucking awful visual effects and terrible acting. So, it what the movie basically missed the mark on every front, but the biggest to me was the fact that I thought it was going to be a different take. It was going to be a, like, Freddy's getting revenge on the parents that fucking killed him over nothing. And that idea of getting revenge, I think, I'm trying to think when that one came out, but I'm pretty sure, I didn't. I think I didn't see it till like way later, and I think I saw it when my wife was pregnant. 
And I remember being like, wow, what a fucked up way to get revenge, killing people's kids. Like, that's so awesome. So to me, that's the movie I wanted to see. I wanted to see the reimagining being him fucking with the parents that killed him for being a pedophile murderer, even though he wasn't. He was just a sweet voodoo-loving guy or whatever, whatever kind of witchcraft he's into. And when they killed him, he was like, fuck this, I'm killing all of your kids and you're going to watch me do it. This is a major surprise. The, the There's a prequel that was very close to being made called uh, Nightmare on Elm Street First Kills. And it was about, you know, the same thing what we're talking about, the prequel of, you know, when Freddy was killing people, the kids, this and that. And then it's about how he went on trial and all the sleazy lawyers that were starting to try to get him off. And the man that was behind this and who was supposed to direct it is named John McNaughton. And John McNaughton, as we both know, is the guy who did one of the greatest horror movies of all time, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Yes, sir, yes, sir, yes. I know yes. I mispronounced a serial killer. I'm like fucking <laughs> Tom Brokaw over here, serial killer. Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. But it's you got a little, you've got a little bit of a, uh, uh, <laughs> you got a little bit of Sean Connery mixed with Buffalo Bill. Henry <laughs> Portrait of a Serial Killer. But it, so <laughs> Buffalo that, Sean <laughs> that movie, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, is so incredible, and it's yeah. like one of the some of the greatest performances in horror history. So dark, so underground, so good, and then it doesn't end happily. No spoilers, but you know we're not going to say exactly how it ends, but it doesn't end well. And yeah. um, we've landed a uh, interview with the man himself, Mr. John McNaughton. Woo! Are you kidding me? He? Are you fucking kidding me? I'm not kidding. He just he uh, agreed to talk to us a little bit about uh, his career and to give us a little insight into first kills. Uh, and then we could come back and sort of like delve into that ourselves. And then uh, I think you have a pitch. I do. I have a pitch. Yeah. You have a pitch. I have a pitch. And then we also, uh, amazing, we got a few pitches online that we could read out and promote. So uh, let's do it. Let's let's go to Mr. John McNaughton right now. Hell yeah. Hello, everybody. We have a very special guest with us today on the Escalator Pitch Podcast, a true genius in cinema, in my opinion, the director of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and Wild Things and many other great projects, Mr. John McNaughton. John McNaughton, thank you for sh uh, showing up on the show. Uh, you're quite welcome. Working in independent cinema and working in the Hollywood system, you've done both of those things. So Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer to Me is one of the greatest independent films of all time. And then you also did a star-studded cast uh, with, with Wild Things and also Mad Dog and Glory, which is an underrated film. Um, so can you give a little bit of advice to aspiring filmmakers do you think that they should start out in independent cinema? Do you think they should go straight for Hollywood? What what are your what's your take on that? Well, I think circumstances and destiny will lead you to where you're going. And if you think you you can make that choice ahead of time, you're probably wrong. Uh, so my my advice is make any film you can. Uh, chances are you're not going to start on a uh, on a studio film um, unless you've worked within the studio system doing other things. Uh, in which case, you may you know get bumped over uh, a dear friend of mine, Jean Vizaganzac, who was, was a fabulous cinematographer who shot a film for me was the cinematographer for the TV show, uh, homicide life on the streets for quite a few years. And, and eventually they allowed episodes for that. Yep, right? I yeah. did. I, yeah. Well, it was the reason I, I went to that show is because he was shooting it. I mean, he was a, a 
in my opinion, that you know, one of the, if not the best, one of the three best uh, handheld cinematographers in the world. And uh, when I found out he was doing that show, I said, okay, I'll do an episode. Uh, but you know, he stuck it out doing cinematography. He was, you know, he was a, a brilliant cinematographer. But he eventually did get to direct, and now he's like, you know, a, a major league top uh, tier uh, episodic director, and has been for quite a few years. So you know, with it, that, that is that's the studio system of television. Uh, but John started out doing little independent films, uh, you know, and I, I met him in graduate school here in out in the cornfields outside of Chicago. And he was working with a guy named Marion Marzinski, who was a great documentarian and uh, grew up, you know, under Hitler. Uh, quite a quite a character, Marion Marzinski. And he's done a lot of uh, frontline documentaries, PBS documentaries. And, and John was his cinematographer for years. So, you know, you, you get started somewhere. Uh, today it's it's uh, you know I think it's easier because of the technology. Uh, you can have you know you can have your editing on your laptop. You can have you can you don't have to buy film. You can buy a uh, you know a digital card and you know everything's uh, a lot less expensive and easier to come by. So in terms of technology, in terms of expense, I think it's a lot easier for young filmmakers today to make films. Absolutely. So just. Pretty much make something. Make something. Make anything. There's festivals. You know, I'm I'm teaching at uh, the Second City. Uh, Harold Ramis left at Bequest, and uh, for the last oh, three years, over for Harold Ramis at Second no, City. No, no, no. Oh. The, Harold Ramis left some money for Second City, which he was an alumni of and very fond of, to uh, start a, a film program, a one-year intensive. And I'm teaching a, a cl- I teach a class there for fun, actually. Uh, so I see, you know, the, but the kids come for one year. They generally have a bachelor's degree. They've been through college uh, mostly. But, you know, but some had been had, you know, gone off and had lives for five or 10 years and decided they that's not what they wanted to do. They want to come back and become filmmakers. And the, the, the emphasis here is on comedy, but it is filmmaking. And uh, they have to make in over the course of a year, make a short film. Uh, and, but once you make that, I mean, there's festivals for short films, there's festivals for comedy, there's festivals for every kind of film you could make. And then you take it out into the festival world. Maybe you get lucky and you get noticed in some, you know, and, and you can get employed at some point. So do you, um, change up your directing style dependent on budget or what kind of actor you're working with? If they're like a, a more well-known person or a lesser well-known person, do you, or, or are you just straight through always the same McNaughton touch? Well, I, I tailor the, uh, the style to the material, uh, what serves, you know, the story you're telling. Uh, but of course there are differences, you know, I mean, we made Henry for $111,000, um, and fortune, you know, but in those days, not, nobody was in, in, in a union. Uh, and so there was no uh, restrictions on how long we could work or, you know, how, <laughs> what uh, travails we could put the poor crew, which was like, <laughs> you know, three or between three and five people on any given day. Uh, and wow. so you, and we shot 28 days straight with no days off. And one day we shot 26 hours, Whoa. but you know, you're young and you do what you have to do to get it done. Uh, so you work it as, you know, you work in, in, in one sense. And everyone always said to me, if you had more money for Henry, what would you have done? Uh, would you have changed anything? I said, I would have paid people more, but wow. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't have changed very uh, nice the style. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have changed the style we worked in the, the, you know, our lack of uh, funds in many ways uh, 
kept us disciplined and uh, uh, we had to be, you know, think creatively always uh, rather than just throw money at problems. And so that was that film. But then, you know, a film like Wild Things, we had more than enough money and that was great. You know, it's great. Oh, I need two technocranes today. Fine. No problem. Amazing. Uh, And, you know, and we were going to shoot five cameras today. Okay. (laughs) So five camera crews, you know line them up so uh each has its its advantages uh, the great thing about henry was you know the late walid ali who was my their two bro- ali brothers were my financial benefactors and they had a video distribution company so they distributed the film uh but when i sh- you know when i eventually gave him the script he never read it and i called him because i needed a, a go ahead and a check and I said, well, have you read the script yet? And his exact words were, to me were, no, John, but I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so I just assumed, you know, there was nobody over my shoulder. That it was the group of people making the film, doing the best they could possibly do. None of us were very experienced, but we were certainly enthusiastic and hopefully gifted. And, uh, you know, we made it to our own lights. I mean, there was no compromise on that film. Uh and eventually there could have been when the MPAA got a hold of it. Had they asked for cuts, I'm sure the Ali brothers would have made the cuts to get a, a more favorable rating and, you know, a chance to make more money. But the MPAA was so uh, mortified by the film. They just, uh, I had the conversation with the lady. She said, I said, well, what do you, what do you want us to cut? Because I didn't want to cut anything. It was already 83 minutes. And she said, Mrs. McNaughton, you know, after watching this film, we decided there's nothing to cut. There's nothing you can do to this film to, to change the rating. We object. Uh, to the overall moral tone <laughs> and so so uh, i mean it was bad news for the ali brothers and, and financially but it, i was completely happy with the decision because <laughs> that film has never had one frame change from the day we made it uh from the day we turned in the you know the the final cut and uh so that's great. Uh, if, if, when you get thirty million dollars, you're not going <laughs> to you're going to have people uh, offering their opinions. Quite a few of them, oh, sure. and uh, and you know you have to uh, listen to whom you have to listen to and f- pick your battles. But for uh, wild things, I want to thank you first of all for one of the greatest sapphic love scenes in the history of cinema, <laughs> and uh, also on the flip side of that, you included. Uh, or, or the studio allowed you to include a, a snapshot of Kevin Bacon's penis. So that was very That, that fair was an accident. You. Oh, it was that an was accident. That was an accident. Yep. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's a, quite an accident. I remember when that movie came out, that was a big deal. And yeah. so w- with that movie, that's a very mainstream movie with a lot of strong sexual content. Did you uh, run up against any, uh, you know, adversaries at the studio or anything like that who wanted to tame? No. They, I mean, that was, you know, we shot the script. Uh, they were, you know, Peter Goober was the executive in charge. We made it for his company, Mandalay, but Mandalay was funded by Sony. We never, and, and the MPAA, everyone, you know, we kind of knew we weren't, we were, we were pushing it right up to the edge. Totally. But we, 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 you know, we didn't cross it. That, as I say that, the scene with Kevin Bacon, which full frontal was, uh, we shot, I don't know, I think five or six takes. And as he stepped out of the shower, Matt threw him the towel, and the towel was always intended to cover him. Uh, and five of the six takes, it did one take the timing was off and it didn't cover him and he was exposed. So that was, that was an outtake as far as any of us were, were concerned wow. until I went in the cutting room and I've worked with the same editor for years, Elena Magadini. She did from Henry through most of the films I've done. Uh, she eventually won the, she won the Emmy for uh, the pilot of Dexter. Uh, oh. but 
So we walked into the cutting room and she showed the scene and there was the take six, which is the one we weren't supposed to use or whatever take it was. Uh, and, you know, he was fully exposed, full frontal newt. And Elena, what, what, you know, you know, you know, you're not, and she just like, she just put her foot down. She was, you got this movie and there's all these nude women and there's all this sex. And, you know, when it comes time for that, we have something to look at. You guys, better, I, we just went, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> Let's see how Kevin feels. And Steve Jones called Kevin Bacon and said, well, Kevin, you know, he goes, how do I look? And he goes, you look fine. He goes, no problem. <laughs> so that's, that's how, uh, that's how that happened. Wow. That's very, uh, that's, a, that's an amazing story. I mean, for a star of that magnitude at that time to do something like that, it's just, it pushed so many boundaries in, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, that's, I think that's what you need to do in, in this day and age is push boundaries in that kind of way. And, you know, well, you're, you're a trailblazer. Always, you know, I went to art school, not film school, as I always tell people. And all the great artists, you know, that I admired, they were always pushing, you know, they were always transgressive. They were always, whatever you said you can't do is wild horses could not keep them from doing it. Sure. You know, there's, there's a line in the sand, let's cross it. You know, so uh, I, I, you know, and that's one reason I like the horror genre because you're uh, you're more or less allowed to be transgressive in the horror. It's expected, but you know, you get in romantic comedy, it's <laughs> it's hard to be transgressive. <laughs> this is the truth. But we were, yeah, but in Wild Things, which was basically a thriller, and people call it neo noir. Uh, to me, it's a crime thriller. Uh, certainly with noir influences because I love 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 film noir, but uh, not trying to you know necessarily homage is just trying to make a good crime thriller and uh and to be transgressive you push it a little further now you were involved with a um project called first kills which was a nightmare on elm street prequel at one point am i correct i don't remember if it was called first kills or not but i did talk to I, i'm trying to think who it, it was at new line of course because they own the franchise and i can't quite remember the uh, young executive cats um i can't remember his first name at the moment it'll come to me who uh, he's no longer there and he was there briefly. And I met him through a friend and he was a pretty cool guy. And, you know, we're talking, well, what could you do at New Line? This, that. I, I, I somehow that, you know, there, there was, it was in the air that they they were talking about a Freddy prequel. And to me, it just, you know, knowing, having, you know, remember when the first picture came out and all that and knowing the story pretty well, I thought, well, this is, this is a great opportunity to tell a story because, Within the, I don't know which picture lay. I think the first picture they lay out the backstory in, in, in that town. You know, the uh, Freddie when he was alive, when he was a real person, he was the janitor at the high school, and he was, uh, you know, he was kidnapping and killing children, or you know, not children but teenagers. Uh, I don't know, it was boys or girls or both. I don't, I don't remember what the whole backstory. Well, that's and, a, that's uh, a question. Um, is is what was Freddy Krueger just a child murderer or is he also a pedophile? Because that, <laughs> not that you know. Look, hey, it's the, both are horrible, but one takes it a step further. <laughs> yeah, one. Well, <laughs> so the point being is there was a you know I I, I don't know how good I am with the supernatural. I'm okay. good with the nat the natural. And, I'll, you know, I, I eventually met Wes Craven at the uh, Masters of Horror uh, dinners and stuff. And he was really uh, a lovely man, really bright and funny and humble and a cool guy. And uh, and he was good at what he did, you know, and that, I, I think I love that film. And uh, so and, and but 
for me, you know, I've never, I don't know, fantasy, is, I don't know if I'm, I've never really tried it very much. And I don't know, but I'm, I'm good at realism, I think. And there was a real story to tell there about, you know, Freddie being the janitor at the high school and he was, whether he was uh, molesting the teenagers or murdering, certainly he was murdering them. What, you know, it was up to, it would be up to the filmmakers how far they wanted to go, or et cetera. But the idea that, you know, there was that real story to tell and then the townspeople eventually, you know, figured it out and threw him in the furnace. Right. <laughs> and that's how he got so messed up. He burned up. Uh, and then to me is like, you know, then what? He went to hell. And yeah. then he came back to the town after he was in hell. Uh, and the idea to me of actually then having him burned up and go to hell. I mean, I, I was like the idea. I mean, I, I just absolutely worship uh, Dante. Uh, and wow. especially, especially in the Inferno. And, uh, you know, there's so much great, uh, classic literature and painting. I mean, the Hieronymus Bosch and the paintings of hell. And, uh, you know, there's so much reference of, I mean, the idea of hell. What better in a horror film than to go to hell? Uh, you know what I love get, about Dante <laughs> is, um, that it's there's a part of hell, one of the circles. It's it's not hot; it's cold because Satan's wings are yeah, flapping. Yeah, the bottom. The not, yeah, that, that, the, oh. that's the ninth circle, the bottom. Yeah, where a betrayal that. is the crime, and they're frozen into the you know the landscape. Oh. So anyway, that's the best. So <laughs> so you would have um, your movie essentially, if you had done the Freddy Krueger prequel, would have been, um, I read somewhere, maybe like a little bit of a courtroom drama with some of the sleazy lawyers trying to get. Freddie off is that is that correct as well? I didn't uh, yeah I didn't even get to courtroom because I did did they take him to trial uh, or did they just heave him in the furnace? I, I don't really know I, if they did yeah and the, and I think yeah. the backstory wasn't um, explored well enough that maybe that could have been the case there could have been right some but of that. that was the whole idea of, of fleshing out that backstory which sure. to me was a great story and yeah. you know uh, the, here's how Freddie got to be Freddie and uh, and the idea of then sending him to hell and getting to actually. You know, build a hell set. Oh, so you would have gone there. You would have gone to hell. Yeah. Oh. So, uh, yeah, that intrigued me. But unfortunately, New Line had uh, made uh, a picture with uh, Adam Sandler. I forget the name of it. Little Nicky. Where some of it, <laughs> yes, and, and some of it took place in hell. And it was a complete flop. And all I had to do is say hell, and that was oh no, oh. More, no more hell for New Line. <laughs> we had, you know, we learned our lesson about hell. So oh. that was about as far as that got. But I, I mean, you know, along the way after Henry, I was offered a lot of more conventional horror, which I mostly wasn't interested in. Mm. And, you know, some of the uh, sequels, I mean, my agent said, well, you know, number Freddie number three or this one, number two or not, blah, blah, blah. And I wasn't so much interested in that because there was a, you know, you, you could, to me, you're never going to be as good as the original. And sure. I, I didn't like to put myself in that position. But to go to the prequel and have a story about a real character in the real world, I felt that was, you know, and by then so much time passed, I felt that was a project I could do with honor. <laughs> and, wow. uh, and and it was an idea that I, I found very interesting. Uh, but like I say, the, the whole hell thing seemed to be the, uh, the end of the story. But as so many projects, it was not to be. So I want to discuss with you because you mentioned while well, we were we met at uh, the last drive in with Joe Bob Briggs and um, you had mentioned a good man is hard to find is something that you're yep. you're looking to make. I in high school. So there was Roald Dahl in grammar school where I started to read for pleasure outside of school. And then 
when I got to high school and they assigned Flannery O'Connor at first, I was like, what's this? But then I read these stories and they are so incredible. Everything that rises must converge. The lame shall enter first. And, and, um, I got this book three by Flannery O'Connor and, yeah, uh, it has it. two of her novels <laughs> and a bunch of her shorts. Uh, a good man is hard to find was not in that book. And I actually sought that out on my own and read it in a library, and it blew my mind. It's such a great story. It's probably my favorite of hers. So you're- I think it's many, it, it's perhaps ranked as her greatest story. It's so by good. a lot of people. Uh, the first time I read it, you know, you're reading along, and you don't know, what, you don't really see that ending. I didn't see that no. ending coming. Nope. And when it happened, my brain sort of had a whiteout. I like couldn't remember it. Wow. It was so extreme and so shocking. I had to go back and read it. What happened? I, um, I really, I just like, a, like a flare went off in my brain and whited everything out, burned it all out, uh, uh, lightning struck and, you know, erased my memory for a brief period. <laughs> and I had to go back and read it a second time to, to confirm the actual events that she described. And it's, holy jeez, man, that's a dark story. Absolutely. So now you are, are you, are you, actively seeking funding do you have funding uh to make this uh well what we do have, here's what we have we have a screenplay mm-hmm. uh the, the the producer a guy named ed richardson out of atlanta who built a studio down there uh, uh it obtained the rights from got the rights from the uh the estate he's a georgian and she was a georgian and i don't you know it, it's not easy to get right the right stir stuff the estate is very covetous but he managed to make a deal to get the rights to that story. But this story is only 17 pages long. Right. Uh, 17 pages does not a screenplay make. You know, you're 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 gonna be thinking around a hundred, and I think the screenplay we have is about 106 pages. So that means you have to invent invent the writer's gonna have to invent, you know, uh eighty-five pages or so. Sure. Uh, so and being that she's one of the greatest uh <laughs> writers of short fiction. She only wrote uh, two novels, I think, two or three. Right. Uh, but mostly she's known for her short stories. And perhaps, you know, Kurt Vonnegut said she was the greatest uh, short story writer of the post-war era. Uh, so who's that good <laughs> now, ah. to, to, to flesh out what she's done? Well, it just so happened. Did you ever see Wise Blood? Yes. Okay. And that's, that the, that's her, based on her work. Her and, book. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's from her book, uh, Wise Blood. That was directed by the great John Houston and et cetera, et cetera. It's a great little film. Uh, but it was written by a guy named Benedict Fitzgerald. And uh, Ed Richardson got Benedict Fitzgerald to write the screenplay for A Good Man is Hard to Find. And it just so happens that Benedict Fitzgerald's parents, his father, who was, I think it was, I'm not sure if it's Robert or Richard Fitzgerald, was a classical scholar and lived in Connecticut. You know, it's worked at some university. And when Flannery O'Connor got out of the uh, writer's program uh, in Ohio, uh, no, Iowa, the Iowa's Writer's Workshop, uh, she was originally from Milledgeville, Georgia, but she went to the uh, Iowa Writer's Workshop and studied. And then somehow Fitzgerald, uh, Robert Fitzgerald and his wife uh, mentored her, sponsored her, and she moved to Connecticut and lived in their house while she was establishing her career before she got ill. Uh, and, 
Benedict Fitzgerald was their son. And when he was a little boy, she used to babysit him. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, the connection, I mean, you couldn't get, so he wrote the script and when it was sent to me, because uh, Michael Rooker and I were bumping into each other because uh, MPI was doing the 30th anniversary re-release of uh, Henry. And so we were at screenings in uh, Chicago and uh, New York, I think, together. And he he had been doing uh, Walking Dead in Georgia, and he met uh, Ed Richardson, the producer, somehow. And Ed Richardson, you know, gave him the, the script, and Michael Rooker knew the story and uh, responded to play the misfit. And then when we were hanging out uh, at these, the Henry events, he asked me if I knew the story. I said, yeah. He says, well, I've got, you know, I'm attached to play the misfit. Are you interested in directing? I said, absolutely. Oh, uh, so I talked to Ed, and Ed sent the script, and then, you know, it was like, Okay, but who's you know how how do you take seventeen pages of Flannery O'Connor and turn it into one hundred and six pages and keep that you know keep that level keep that level of quality and he you know I didn't know that it could be done but it's a really great script and you know what he invented you would believe that she wrote amazing uh, so so it's pretty great stuff so I'm attached to this director we have the screenplay the rights to the, the original story uh, the Benedict Fitzgerald screenplay and Michael Rooker attached to play the misfit uh, we had meetings uh, we had meetings at you know in Los Angeles we had meetings at Netflix and we basically are in the position of having to find a woman to play the grandmother of you know of considerable stature because it's a really dark piece of material and everybody's a little afraid of it uh, so we need somebody of you know with a with a hopefully uh, a woman of the grandmotherly age who's won an Oscar or two of which there are quite a few. So well, any, any ideas? A- Cause somebody that first comes to mind is I, I feel like she's not utilized any longer. Um, at least I haven't seen her in, in a while is Diane Weist or Diane Weist. How do you say her name? Um, Weist, I believe. Weist, Diane Weist. She is one of my favorite actresses of all time. In, a, in all honesty, like anything she's in, she elevates the material, perhaps her. Well, you know, we're we're shopping at the moment. Sure. And of course, you know, uh, I mean, it's always the problem. You know, you can always get good people, and but the studio always wants somebody else. Right. <laughs> so, so it's just that process that you have to go through, and that's the process we're we're going through right now. But it, you know, it is a dream project, but it is a project that everybody knows that story. Everybody's read that story. It's mm-hmm. just one of the all-time great stories. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Mr. McNaughton, and uh, can't wait to see what you do next. I really hope A Good Man is Hard to Find comes out. And uh, yeah, I'll talk to you very soon. All right, thank you. How Oh, Mr. McNaughton, thank you what so dude. much. What a, uh, a legend. Legend. A true legend. And I mean, look, I really want to see his movie... A good man is hard to find. Flannery O'Connor, uh, as I said, is she is one of my favorite writers, and for him to be doing that short story with Michael Roker as the misfit, that uh, Hollywood, if you don't pony up the goddamn money for this, but you'll pony up the mo- money for Super Babies Two or whatever, you, you just lost it. You gotta put, you gotta get, even just give him ten mil. I mean, it's this is man has proved himself, and so is Roker. Please, Hollywood, do me a favor. I don't want to have a heart attack before I'm 47. Wait, they're, they're making Super Babies 2? <laughs> there already was a Super Babies 2. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, super Babies 3, more super. 
fantastic. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. So yep. how about, you know, last week I pitched you my idea for a uh, Indiana Jones continuation. Let's hear what you got. Let's hear a pitch from you about Nightmare on Elm Street. So I'm going to go out there on a limb. A lot of people are going to be pissed at me for this, but I think like Robert England's getting older. He's probably only got like one or two movies left in him. He said he might do another one. I've heard. I don't want anything to do with that movie. Someone else needs to take the Robert England one. I'm going out on a limb and saying when that's all said and done and they're going back to the back to the reimagining, going back to the, the remake or the the whatever they want to call it. Here's what I want, man. The thing, the crux to me that makes me love Nightmare is the dreams. And this comes from the fact that I'm, I have sleep paralysis and I've had night terrors before. And like, uh, for those who don't know, sleep paralysis is like where you can't fucking move. You're like awake and you think you're, you're trying to get out of bed. You think you can get up, but you can't. You just lay there. And if, it'll feel like 20 hours, even if it's been 15 minutes. It's fucking awful. Terrible. And night... Night terrors are like, you know, something happens that's so fucking terrifying. I wake up screaming. A lot of times, like I said, for me, it's this like Freddy Krueger-esque old man in like a, a nice suit, like a like a David Bowie-esque suit with a codpiece. Does he have a top hat? He does not have a top Interesting. hat. Interesting. He's, he's bald, but I think he does have like, man, it's hard. You know what dreams are. Things kind of get weird well a quick whatever. aside I, if you have have you seen that documentary the nightmare no dude watch this movie it's about people who have sleep paralysis and they all see similar things the top hat man and his like minions who fuck it's uh robert asher i think is the director's name it's really a great documentary about sleep paralysis but it's also scary it may give Sweet. you some insight into what you're seeing um hell yeah but it's interesting that you do not see the top hat that you see his bald head Wow. No, and I think he's got like what do you call that? He's got like the crown of hair, the hair just around. Bald fuck syndrome. Yeah, he's got old bald man syndrome. <laughs> he looks like like any a bald guy who doesn't shave the back. No offense to the bald fucks out there, but you know. No, no offense, but you're a bald fuck. Uh, but that's what I. So I want Freddie would be played by one person, whoever that is. He'd have to be somewhat terrifying. But Kevin Bacon, Freddie. Yes, exactly. So, but. Every <laughs> every person that sees him sees him completely different. Not not just different in like this time he's a snake or this time he's this goofy thing. There's that one scene in three where Freddy starts out as like a nurse and then turns into Freddy. Like that kind of idea, except the person dreaming would always see that thing is there would be something that would make them similar maybe because freddie you know he always has the glove or something like that but it's not just that it's not just one look everyone sees him different and everyone's we're really getting into dreams and the dream of it all um the other big thing in mine is kids i i love like with it coming out and being about kids i want kids and i want kids dead okay <laughs> so you <laughs> That's going to be the quote. That's going to be like on our promo materials. It's like Josh Stifter, I want kids dead, the Escalator Pitch Podcast. That was so harsh. But I, I So do, you're going preteen. Like, you're not going with high school. You're going like eighth I'm grade. I'm going, yeah, somewhat. middle school. Okay, cool. Middle school, because that's when dreams affect us the most. Like, 
like when you're in high school, you're starting to get out of that afraid of like you're not afraid of the dark anymore as much. You're not afraid I'm to sleep still in your room. I'm afraid of the dark. Who, yeah. who are you talking about? Yes, you're, you're you're not afraid to sleep alone necessarily. Yes, you're not I sitting am. there going like, my. <laughs> I sleep in the nightlight, okay. Josh. Okay. <laughs> I have to, there has been times where I'll like I get nervous that I'm gonna have sleep paralysis when no one's home and I've lived with my wife for fucking 12 years now so like if my wife is gone on like a girl's vacation and maybe my kids are with my in-laws or something like that I'll have a moment where I'm like it's fucking it's fucking dark in here <laughs> I hope I don't have sleep paralysis oh, tonight or this man. is gonna be terrifying it's rough um but so that's why I want I want like Maybe like freshman in high school. If if the studio's like, we can't do fucking six year you can't kill six year olds, Josh. But middle okay. school's good. I mean, they, you're right. They did it, and that that that's fine. I like that. Yeah. they're on bikes. Yeah, and 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 they're like scared of dreams. They're trying to figure stuff out. Plus, they're like puberty time. So when they're having these nightmares, they're kind of like confused. If it like you can have the scene where the mom is like, your body's changing. Things are different. <laughs> you might dream about a fucking scary monster with spike hands like there. <laughs> so I want I want kids in it. I just feel like my problem with all of the movies has always been they know what dreams are. They get it like it's it's they're too involved in their dreams. I want the kids because that's scary. The kids in dreams is terrifying. And finally, I want some hell. I want hell in it. I like, like, I wasn't the biggest. I'm not going to say I'm like a huge fan of it or whatever. But there's the sequence where, you know, they're in the fucking sewers or whatever. And it's got this dank, dark, hellish vibe. And and you see the fire or whatever. He's like dancing in the fire and stuff like that. I feel like we've gotten to a place. Remember in... uh the second Bill and Ted movie, they go to hell. Oh, fuck yeah, I love it. I want that hell, I want a, a that's like a terrifying scene to me. With the, the And that almost has a dreamlike element to it, where you're seeing into what terrifies them. Yeah, your own like personal hell. what's scary hell. to them. I want, I want these kids to go to their own personal hell. I want to see these kids go to hell, and I want to see what hell looks like through each of their perspectives. And see Freddy Krueger as a demon. Like, I want to see that demon element of Freddy Krueger. Sure, I love it. I love exploring Freddy as an even bigger villain than just a guy with a hat and some claws. Like, they they hint upon it in the movies that he's, like, got all these powers and stuff. But you're right, now that we have the technology, we're at a place where we can really go huge with it. Yeah, and we and and you get some nice practical set pieces. Once they get to hell, you know, the first that's that's your that's your final act of the movie is they go to hell or whatever, but we get some cool like maybe there are some fire sequences. I mean, even in 3 there's that cool like back alley set piece. Th- that kind of stuff could be could be like still used. Those sort of set pieces, practical set pieces. But then you can enhance them now so much where you can have them, you know, looking massive and terrifying or extremely claustrophobic and like each one of these kids is in their own terrifying hell that speaks to everyone so you can kind of scare everyone with freddy krueger and i guess that's the big thing is like scary i thought that um jackie earl haley yeah bad news bears boy he uh was fine whatever but the, the idea was, like, scarier. You know what I mean? They and tried. I, I, right, but didn't hit. <laughs> didn't right, hit. that's what I mean, but didn't hit. I feel like 
but but it didn't hit because there was nothing scary in the movie. Like you never was sitting there going like, "Wow, that's a terrifying situation to be in." That's what it needs. It needs that. It needs that terrifying situation to be in with a Freddy Krueger that's truly scary. Talking about kids' assholes and stuff like that. No, 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 no assholes. No, no, no. X nay the assholes. But Your the assholes mine. <laughs> You know, uh, the Jackie O'Haley, I, I will say that I feel like he got the short end of the stick. He could have been great. He could have been right. great if, like, the movie was good. Um, and that's very sad. So me, would you give him another chance? You feel, I mean, ha- has the bridge been burned? Like, do ha- does the audience hate him enough at this point? Yeah, you're right. You're right. The audience would revolt. I think I, I think you got to go with someone fresh, someone new, and someone completely unexpected. Like, Pennywise hit so hard because everyone went... We don't know this guy from Adam. We don't trust him. We don't like the way he looks. And then when he pulled it off, everyone was just like, oh, shit. And for the shortcomings of it, for me, I thought he did a killer job. Like, Penny Pennywise is fantastic in that movie. And I think part of it is because our expectation was not, we weren't waiting for something. We weren't going like, what's this guy going to do? We were just kind of like, he's got big shoes to fill. <laughs> We'll how see you, what happens. How do you beat Tim Curry? You, it's, it's right. almost impossible. You, you just do something completely different. And I think that's what needs to happen. I think you need to go completely different while still maintaining that idea of what Freddy was and what Freddy ha- was meant to be. I keep a dream journal, and you can have all that shit. And that's a big part of it, is I think the dream journal has to play a part of it as well. I think a dr- one of the kids keeps a dream journal, and we, we get into that. I like, highly recommend that to everyone on the face of the planet. Is like It took me a little while to get into it, but I'm a decade in, and I haven't filled that much. It's like one single notebook. But I'm near. I started it in '09. I skipped a couple of years, but I'm almost done. And reading back on these dreams, I would have never remembered any of this shit. But to go and see what I was thinking at those times, the people that I brought into my dreams, all that stuff. So maybe there's there's something like one of the characters has that sort of a dream journal where he's like, "Wow, the seeds for this have been planted," and maybe that helps them somehow. You know. Um, but yeah, I, I totally recommend keeping a dream journal, especially if you're going to fight Freddy Krueger. Uh, the only studio note I think that they have is that, um, Harvey Weinstein is coming out of retirement to produce. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. And now it's my new nightmare. <laughs> exactly. This is, uh, this is Harvey Weinstein's big comeback apology tour with Josh Stifter's A Nightmare on Elm Street <laughs> part, whatever. <laughs> We're fucked. He just he. I walk into the room. He looks at me and he says, "Your asshole belongs to me." And I'm like, "Shit, oh, no. no, me too, <laughs> not me." Oh man, Harvey, you fucking piece of shit. All right, but so you got a pitch? Uh, I have something that I like. I don't have a pitch for a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, but I have a pitch for something that I would do that is an original idea. Because I went to an old boys Catholic school and I have a lot of guilt and I have a lot of <laughs> fucked up thoughts and I'm a piece of shit and I hate myself. So, you know, that, starting from there. as every That's kind of where everyone starts, right? I think right? everybody they... <laughs> starts there. But for me, like, I like a lot of the Catholic, I like a lot of ideas in Catholicism and I like um, some of the tenets of, of love and all that stuff and some of the, the things that Jesus put out, you know, his greatest hits. But the idea that I went through this institution, I mean, I was 
confirmed into the Catholic Church by somebody who later on was outed as a child molester. Okay. That fucks me up in a major way. I, so even if I was, say, still religious or believed in um, every single thing that the Catholic Church taught, isn't that null and void? Like, don't I have to go back and redo that? Like, it just fucking, I don't know. It, it throws me for a loop because they hide pedophiles. Pedophiles get away. Just right. so much filthy things happen. And then, you know, even if you go into history about all the fucking shitty things that the Catholic Church used to do, like the Inquisition... There's so much there. All It's almost all based on evil things. There's so much evil. There's so <laughs> much evil, while there's also so much good. I mean, I, I've met um, Catholic priests who I know, and I, well, I don't know, but I know that, I know that my instinct tells me that these are good people, and they do not mean yes, people yeah, totally. harm, you know? Um, so my idea would be based in, like, a Catholic, all-boys Catholic school, and it starts out in, like, I don't know, the 50s or the 60s, and the valedictorian is giving this great speech. Everybody loves this guy, whatever. And um, the structure's not really there yet. I'll figure it out. But it flash forwards a couple of years, and one of the priests is in a, a, a gay bar, like a leather daddy bar from this Catholic school. And he sees. You had me at leather daddy. <laughs> leather daddy. <laughs> <laughs> and he sees. The valedictorian is in there having a great time with his friends, dresses a leather daddy has whatever, and um, the valedictorian recognizes Father, let's say Jeffrey, <laughs> <laughs> Father Jeffrey. You're oh my, what are you doing here? Like, and then so Father Jeffrey, knowing that he's been outed as a closeted homosexual, runs back to the old boys Catholic school and gathers up his fellow brothers and fathers and says. I was doing some undercover work. I found out that Mikey there, uh, who was our valedictorian a few years ago, is sinning in the homosexual community. I mean, we must do something to stop it because it will come out and ruin the reputation of our school. And this is, mind you, just the first 10 minutes of the movie. So they they yep. get him, they kidnap him and bring him to the Catholic school and they start to like torture him and try to beat the gay out of him. And it doesn't end well. They end up burying him in like the new wing of the school where uh you know you ever read that story the cask of amontillado by egler Allan poe Ed yep. egler well egler <laughs> egler Edgler, Allen polo and so they they bury him in a wall and just leave him there to die in his leather daddy outfit and and every all the fathers and brothers and all that forget about it fast forward to modern day right and there's this new crop of kids that we introduce, and it doesn't matter that some of them are homosexuals. It doesn't matter that some of them are drug addicts. In fact, the richer you are and the more fucked up you are, the less that the brothers and fathers care because their daddies and mommies are donating money paying, to the school. Yeah, paying a shitload to the school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? So, um, but what happens is somehow, like, the school is being renovated, and one of the only old elder priests left is Father Jeffrey. He's, like, yeah. the president of the school, you know? And he's still a piece of shit, but, you know, we know he's a piece of shit, but the kids sort of like him because he's they've been there forever. Uh, and when they're remodeling the school, somehow our group of, of heroes stumbles upon the remains of this young man, and he gets resurrected. I don't know exactly how. We'll figure that out later. But he is now what we call the Demon Daddy. Demon Daddy. <laughs> Demon Daddy. So Demon basically, daddy. he's like... Freddy Krueger meets Pinhead, and he's like, I've been 
I was exiled to hell by the priests and the brothers of this school, and I have learned all the secrets, and I will have my revenge. But first, since you resurrected me, I will give you all one wish. <laughs> and so all these youngsters, you know, they take their wish for this or that. But it turns out at the end, Demon Daddy gets full-blown free and starts to just murder every last motherfucker in sight. So he's so he's doing wishes too. Yeah, he's doing wishes. Well, okay, so- or maybe it's not wishes, but something like that where he can like maybe they're all bullied kids and he's like, "I'll go fuck those kids up for you and then you need to give me permission to free me so, so I he's- can have free reign to go get my revenge." Okay, so he's got a little bit of like, like genie the, Yeah, the like leprechaun. A yeah, a little bit of leprechaun. Like he's got, he's granting wishes. He's, he's got the, he's got the genie thing where he's like, "I'll do these things for you, and then you'll set me free." You have to set me free. Yeah, he's he's bound to these kids because they're the ones who was the leprechaun that way. Did the leprechaun want to be set free? Uh, actually, no, probably not. The leprechaun wanted his gold, but I thought yeah. in like real leprechaun lore that he would grant you wishes if you. He, I think he grants wishes, but I don't know if it's for freedom. I think it's like to give him back his gold. Or right. Okay, shit. so it's more genie-ish. It's more genie. It's more genie. I grant you guys three wishes, and then I get to go free. And then when he's set free, he's just like, "Oh, you fuckers done like, fucked you up! You fucked up, you bitch!" <laughs> and uh, but the thing is, like, it's 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 mayhem. I mean, he pretty much destroys the entire school, the entire surrounding town, and these kids are like, "Holy fuck! We let the demon daddy out. We gotta fucking fight him." And it turns out that the last time that the uh, Catholic Church was actually truly blessed, was back, back, back in the day, way back in the day, like, I don't know, the fucking 800s or something. And uh, that then those, those weapons in the 800s were blessed by truly blessed Catholic priests, and there's a museum in town that holds some of these weapons, so the kids have to go get those weapons, and that's how they fight the demon daddy with, like, these ancient swords and fucking axes and shit like that. And that's basically what I have. I mean, I'll fill in the blanks with some backstory or exposition or whatever, but I think that yeah. there's something there. I definitely think there's something there. See, to me, the thing I, I really like is I feel like it hits... I see where you're coming with, with this pitch from Nightmare on Elm Street mm-hmm. because it's basically taking Freddy Krueger, giving him the backstory, but it also gives him something that almost makes him like a good guy off the bat where you're like, this guy's doing good stuff. Okay. And then when hell breaks loose, I'm imagining hell like thoroughly break. Like he's fucking slaughtering. Oh, he's like, killing everybody. He doesn't even care. And, and the thing is like, we have to remember that father Jeffrey is such a slimy piece of shit that he's able to like maneuver his way out of these situations and allow his students and his faculty to be fucking completely brutally murdered. And, and so that he can get away and live. You know, he's the ultimate bad piece of shit. But he's got, but you got to murder him. Oh, right? in the end, he's he, dead. He's he's going to hell. Oh, I want him. He's going to hell and getting, you know, Freddie's going to go, your ass belongs to me. <laughs> <laughs> your asshole belongs oh, yeah, to me. Yeah, that's it. We're going to steal that line. And, and Demon oh, Daddy's. Oh, get your asshole belongs to me. <laughs> oh, my God. TM Wes Craven. I'm seeing this in 3D. A priest in 3D. 3D for dicks. We have some audience pitches, don't we? Dude, so yeah, like this week. I'm, I'm excited. I can't believe that we, we only had one episode and now we're already getting audio, audience pitches. This is great. So Corey Stewart at S-T-E-W-A-R-C-O. Corey Stewart, a big fan of The Last Drive-In. He said, old man Freddy. Claws are rusty. 
he's jaded on the whole nightmare thing and just wants to be left alone. Some new kids start eating Tide Pods and making memes about Freddy, and it summons him back to wreak havoc on those Gen Z kids who are just doing it for the lulls. I See, like it. I, this, I know, it's it's actually kind of similar to the Peter Jackson idea. Fuck up kids are being fucking idiots. Old man Freddy is just doesn't want to be a part of it anymore, but then he gets summoned and he's like, all right, I'll kill these Tide, tide Pod-eating pod motherfuckers. That's, I love the Tide Pod touch because maybe the Tide Pod could come in and be something or do something, um, be very important. We could get sponsored by the Tide people. I would. I you think they're going to sponsor us? <laughs> I mean, for a Freddy Krueger movie, fuck yeah, Freddy. Sure. You know, all of a sudden, Freddy's like the face of Tide Pods. Plus, I guess it's the idea is is you, th- we're telling kids not to eat Tide Pods, so Tide is like, yes, we're in. If you're killing the kids who are eating it, you're getting rid of this negativity. I am one hundred percent in. You know, it's, especially if Freddy's like. I'm fucked up, but eating Tide Pods is really fucked up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a great uh, meme I want to share. I don't know if it's real or not, but um, it's Freddy Krueger with a bicycle and he's popping a wheelie and he's like, "Pop wheelies instead of pills." I don't know. If oh it's, my god! I don't know if it's real. If it's like an actual anti-drug thing, yeah. or if it was like a bullshit. Thing. We'll share that on the Escalator Pitch social media, but it is so funny. Because it really is Freddy with a bike popping a wheelie. Yeah, we got one from Homicide Never Dies. Homicide McCloud, who actually... Homicide McCloud, check it out now on Troma Now. The movie is on there. Um, you could uh, you could play up the God is Dead idea with Rest Craven being gone. It could be a real-world take on he was keeping Freddy at bay, and now the creator is gone. Freddy returns stronger than ever, and nothing can stop him. Uh, I like the idea of Freddy not being stopped. Haha. Dude, this is like to me. That's like a new nightmare idea, but taken to the next level. To the next level. The creator was keeping him at bay. I love that idea. I love it. Where it was like it's been going on so long. Wes Craven has done so much with it because it's truly a part of Wes Craven. Like Wes Craven, this is a real thing. Wes Craven didn't even write anything. He's just taking from what Freddy Krueger is kind of doing, or like doing in his dreams maybe like freddy krueger has been trying to get out through Wes craven and then with west craven dying bam i like for me as a filmmaker thinking about after i'm dead someone making a movie like that based on something i've made is like that like how amazing would that amazing. be amazing amazing i think that's a great idea i love that idea so much these are great already. I mean, I hope these keep coming in because uh, I think these are better than whatever I came up with. <laughs> uh, all right, so we got one from Jimmy Adamson, who's a great uh, fan and worker of Troma. He was the production coordinator on uh, Shakespeare's Shitstorm, and he also was a writer for the special without Brett Davis. Uh, at Adamson underscore Jimmy. He says, the fight moves from the streets to the sheets when Freddy begins picking off young social justice activists. At some point, Freddy says, stay woke, y'all. This definitely will be in the trailer or on the poster. That is the best tagline of all time. That's like that's like a real pitch. Like, I just mumble on about a fucking, what about dreams? Maybe we put dreams. This dude's got a legit pitch. It's two sentences. Like, it's clean. He's got a fucking hilarious hook. I mean, come on. 
the trailer is almost done. See that that is some good writing. That is just all around fantastic writing. We will have Jimmy on the podcast at some point. That dude has a great mind. He came up with some Friday the Thirteenth sequels that we'll explore and uh, just pick his mind in general. So uh, thank you, Jimmy. I got one from Tony Mills that says Freddy was actually Edward Scissorhands before he got burned. I like the aesthetic of Tim Burton bro- grafted onto the Freddy. Old school Tim Burton, like old uh, German expressionist style in it. See, and that's where, like, when I was thinking about hell, that's what I'm picturing. I'm picturing hell as, like, these crazy Tim Burton-esque set pieces. I love that. I love, like, cool set pieces like that. And it's something that's kind of a, it's kind of gone the way of the dodo recently. You don't see big, you see everything's just fucking CGI that looks like real life. I want something that looks cool with like gargoyles in hell and stuff like that all right so uh please continue to send these into us at escalator pitch on twitter and instagram and facebook and then escalator pitch podcast at gmail.com send us like a little snippet like a little paragraph we'll read it on uh, out and then we'll share your social media and uh, this really helps us because it lets us know we got to step up our pitch game yeah totally i know reading these oh i got one more from chuck hawk he's a he's a He's a uh, Patreon subscriber, a great dude. He basically, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he basically says he wants Spawn versus Freddy. I I need a, I would watch that, but I need a Spawn movie on its own first that works before I can say go all in on Spawn versus Freddy. Totally. I think we need to give Spawn his day in court without, you know, John Leguizamo as a clown. That if you want to hear the op if you want to see the opposite of what I'm picturing hell to look like, go watch that Spawn movie. All right, so this has been a beautiful episode. Any any uh, did you see any of the Nightmare on Elm Streets in the theater? Uh I uh, Freddy versus Jason I saw in the theater. That's the only one I saw, but I saw all of them. I mean, the you remember going into the movie rental house or like your local blockbuster or I went to like a mom and pop movie rental place it had like a name of a place that already existed like a hollywood video or something like that but it was just owned by some people in town and they had the they had every poster they were obviously horror fans it was like every nightmare and friday the 13th poster was up um and i saw them all like immediately like my parents didn't want me to rent them but there was no stopping me like i would take out the vhs from inside fucking Care Bear or from I would take the case from Care Bears and put a fucking Nightmare on Elm Street movie in there and bring it home. Brilliant. Oh my so god. I grew up on all of them. Like those were my jam. Hell yeah. Me too. I I didn't see any in the theater but I except for Freddy versus Jason and uh I saw that in Hollywood. I was in the first row of the Arclight Cinerama Dome and sitting behind me was none other than Quentin Tarantino. Really? Swear to Jesus uh, uh, and Demon Daddy. I swear. Like, it was insane because at first, me and my friend Dan were sitting there in the very, very front row. It was a 1 a.m. screening. We didn't think anybody was going to be there, but the house was kind of packed. It was like opening weekend. And um, we hear this guy behind us, sort of loud, sort of obnoxious, saying stuff like, Remo Williams, the adventure began, but it never continued. And, you know, we're just like, who the fuck is this guy? But all of a sudden, this like, full on Japanese guy like accent can barely speak English is alone and he sits next to me and my friend Dan and he's looking around and then he goes oh you you 
he starts screaming, <laughs> screaming at Tarantino. He's like, you make of the Dark Man movie. You make of the Dark Man movie. And we turn around to look, and it's Tarantino. And Tarantino's like, no, 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 I didn't make the Dark Man movie. That was Sam Raimi. <laughs> Oh my and the God, Japanese guy's the... like, no, no, dark suit, dark suit. And he's like, oh, oh, you mean Reservoir Dogs? He's like, yes, I love that movie. <sighs> then he starts going like, he's like, he's like, Robert Rodriguez is here. And he puts his hand up really high and he goes, you're here. And he puts his hand really low. Lower? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Tarantino's like, oh, yeah, Robert's a great director. <laughs> That's the best story I've it ever heard. It was so man. amazing. And then finally he's like he's like the guy goes, Everybody and Tarantino's like, No, no, shh, don't tell anybody I'm here. I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you, but don't tell the whole place I'm here. So then finally he's like, you know, what's your next movie? This and that. So they had a little conversation and me and my friend Dan, we were high as fuck, just like laughing our balls off. And Tarantino was like kind of looking at us like, Isn't this funny? Isn't this funny? But yeah, wow. it was amazing. You, <laughs> that is the best story ever. You, Robert Rodriguez, is here. here you're you are here. here. Lower, lower, lower. Like, I thought you were gonna say that that he went. You're here, or Robert Rodriguez is here, like really high. He did, and then he's like, "You're even higher." No, no, no. He but said no, here and did it low, like even lower. So it the way that he put his hands was like there were sh- many directors in between them. <laughs> And Sam Raimi was somewhere in the oh, middle. Oh, yeah, it's Sam Raimi. Like, no. <laughs> and then um, finally he's like, who you want to win, Freddy or Jason? And he's like, I want Jason to win, but I fear that Freddy won't win. And then the movie yeah. started. Like It started like right on cue, and that was it. It was just like, I don't care how good or bad this movie is. I just had that experience. And it was weird because I saw Tarantino in weird experiences like that many times in L.A., We'll get to those at another time, but that, like, that's... Dude, we got to go out on that story. Yeah. That story is just way too fantastic. <laughs> wow, that's some funny that's shit. That's pretty much it. So, uh, to end the episode, I uh, put together a theme song for Demon Daddy, which is an instrumental by Mr. Schlong Carpenter. Mr. Schlong <laughs> Carpenter. So, we're going to go out on the, the Demon Daddy theme from Schlong Carpenter. And again, Josh, thank you so much for doing this with me. I would not have done this unless you were so cool on your own podcast. And to like. Dude, I love it. Yeah, man. I look forward to this every week now. It's like my. This is my favorite part of the week is when we can sit down, bullshit about movies, read some scripts, and do some pitches. Absolutely. And we'll keep doing this uh, thing. I think our new goal is to keep doing this podcast until somebody actually gets paid for a fucking pitch. And it doesn't matter if it's me or Josh. Anyone. Anyone. Get paid for your pitches, bitches.